friends i'm back it's been a minute but i'm super excited for what i am going to be talking about on my podcast for a few episodes or so we'll see how it goes but a few weeks ago i was at my psychiatrist appointment and usually i go there to figure out if my medication is working well with my body and things like that when you adjust if not but and I talked to my therapist about things that are going on in my life. But at this moment, I really, I hadn't seen my therapist for, like, I think it's been a few months. And so I just kind of, like, unloaded, I guess you could say. And one thing I was talking to her about was, like, how hard it is to keep and make boundaries and not feel guilty about it. And I think that I'm definitely not the only person here that struggles with that. But one thing she had said was, you know, as a woman who we tend to be more, uh, more tender, more caring, more nurturing, we feel guilty if we need to set boundaries. We feel like we should always be giving, giving, giving. And it's really not the case, uh, especially for our mental health. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, anyone's mental health, but you know, if you struggle with any sort of mental illness, it's just, it's so hard. It's so hard. But when I was talking to her about it and I was telling her this, she told me about a book that she read on boundaries. And she said, you know, think of it this way. If there's someone who is making trouble in your life and you're having feelings of resentment, which is usually what happens if you keep not setting those boundaries, you resent that person more and more and more. And it just kind of piles up, but you keep saying yes. You keep letting them talk to you a certain way. You keep letting them treat you a certain way and it becomes abusive and that's not okay. Right? So basically she said, boundaries are great and they are something that you have to do with relationships, with things in your life, what you let come and go. And she was saying that it's a way to teach that person that you're serious and that you're not willing to budge on that boundary. So either they need a change or they're not welcome in your life anymore, which sounds extremely harsh, (laughs) especially when Like, I'm such an empath, and I care, I feel people's emotions, but at the same time, it's bogging me down to where I can't function, especially when I'm around those people that I've set boundaries with. It's just, like, it doesn't feel good, and you leave depleted and just no energy, and your mental health for the next week is going down, unless you set those boundaries, And so I thought that was very, very interesting because I've never thought of it that way. I was like, you're right. How am I supposed to teach this person that they can't talk to me like that in a group setting? They can't talk to my kids like that. They can't do certain things. If I don't set that boundary, it's going to be a hard conversation. That's for sure. (laughs) But it's something that needs to happen for you to be able to have your mental health back. Now, again, boundaries are not just for people who struggle with mental health. This is for everyone in the world needs to have boundaries. So I ended up getting that book that my psychiatrist told me about, and it's been absolutely amazing. And I thought, you know what? Not a lot of my friends 
have time to read or some of them just don't enjoy to read and I don't really have a lot of time either as I'm raising three kids but I'm gonna find time for this because it's really important and I really 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 want to spread this message to anyone who's willing to listen so I bought the book and I've been reading it and I'm like I've got to share this so this book is called Boundaries, and at the end of the podcast, I will be mentioning what the book is and who wrote it, so if you decide you just want to read it instead of listening, that's totally fine, but I thought, let me do the hard work for all of you, especially ones who love to listen to podcasts while they're busy at work cleaning their house, going to work, um, doing errands, like whatever it is, and you love to listen to a podcast instead of sitting down to read for 10 minutes, well... I'm your girl. I'm here for it. So I am going to be this first chapter. I really want to read the story of this woman's life because it's called a day in a boundaryless life. And I want, when I was reading this, there's similar things where I'm like, okay, I didn't realize that, you know, if you let it go on for so long, how are you supposed to fulfill your own needs and your happiness like there has got to be boundaries with your partner with your kids with your partner's family with your family like you've got to know when to say no and when to say yes which is very hard to do and it feels super harsh like I said so I decided that I really want to talk about this and one thing I do want to mention with this book is it does um, talk quite a bit about God. And I think my friends who are in my life do know uh, that I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and my relationship with God and Jesus Christ are amazing. But at the same time, I did want to kind of make this a little bit more neutral so that other people who, I mean, I have friends who don't believe in God, and I love them 100% for the person that they are. So I wanted to keep this a way that everyone could listen there in this story though, that I am going to be reading. She does this woman personally is religious. So this book is not an LDS written book, but it does mention God quite a bit in here. These are God fearing people. So I just wanted to let you know that my religion is important to me, but I also wanted to keep this a little bit more neutral so that everyone could listen. So I just wanted to point that out before I get started, but I'm basically just going to read what her story's like, and I might stop for discussion in between and stuff, but let's get started. So it's 6 a.m. in the morning. The alarm jangled. Blurry-eyed from too little sleep, Sherry shut off the noisy intruder, turned on the bedside lamp, and sat in bed. Looking blankly at the wall, she tried to get her bearings. Why am I dreading this day? Lord, didn't you promise me a life of joy? Then, as the cobwebs left her mind, Sherry remembered the reason for her dread. The 4.30 meeting with Todd's third grade teacher. The phone call returned to her memory. Sherry, this is Jean Russell. I wonder if we could meet about Todd's performance and his uh, behavior. Todd couldn't keep still and listen to the teacher's. He didn't even listen to Sherry and Waltz. 
Todd was such a strong-willed child, and she didn't want to quench his spirit. Wasn't that more important? Well, no time to worry about that, Sherry said to herself, raising her 35-year-old body off the bed and padding to the shower. I've got enough troubles to keep me busy all day. Under the shower, Sherry's mind moved out of first gear. She began mentally ticking off the day's schedule. Todd, nine, and Amy, six, would have been a handful even if she wasn't a working parent. Let's see. Fix breakfast, pack two lunches, and finish sewing. Amy's costume for school play. That would be a trick. Finishing sewing the costume for the carpool picks her up at 7.45 a.m. Sherry thought regretfully about last night. She planned to work on Amy's costume then, using her talents to make a special day for her little girl. But her mother had dropped over unexpectedly. Good manners dictated that she play hostess, and another evening was shot. The memories of her attempts to salvage the time weren't pretty. Trying to be diplomatic, Sherry artfully told her mother, You can't imagine how much I enjoy your surprise visits, Mom. But I was wondering, would you mind if I work on Amy's costume while we talk? Sherry cringed inwardly, correcting, correctly anticipating her mother's response. Sherry, you know I'd be the last to intrude on your time with your family. Sherry's mother, widowed for 12 years, had elevated her widowhood to the status of martyrdom. I mean, since your father died, it's been such an empty time. I still miss our family. How could I deprive you of all that for yourself? I'll bet I found out how, Sherry thought to herself. That's why I can imagine why you don't bring Walt and the children to see me much anymore. How could I be entertaining? I'm just a lonely old lady who gave her entire life to her children. Who would want to spend any time with me? Okay, I just want to stop there for a second. Has anyone else gotten this response? It doesn't have to be from a mom, but I mean anyone who just kind of feels in that guilt, like, well, I did this for you, so now I think you need to do this for me. And so then you feel like, okay, I have to say yes. I just have to say, and I really don't want to sound rude here, but I do not like that at all. I don't like when I do something for someone and they're like, well, since I did that, could you do this for me? It's like, why does it have to be that way? Why can't I just do something for you that's nice and you can do something for me that's nice? And if I don't want to do that, I'm going to say no and I mean no. And if you mean no and you don't want to do that for me, then please tell me no. Don't tell me yes and then, you know, not be wanting to do it and dreading it and then resent me. I just, I'm not a fan of that. I don't like it. So for those of you who are in my life, you know that now. <laughs> I will say no if I don't really don't want to do something, and it means no. But, you know, I do not have that expectation where I expect someone to do something for me because I've done so much for them. Like, expectations kill relationships. I just want to say that. <laughs> From marriages to with your kids to in-laws and parent like it just is not a good way to look at life so also please excuse if I'm reading words wrong like honestly it's hard and it's nerve-wracking for me to be reading so <laughs> out loud in 
knowing that it's going to my podcast. So I may screw up quite a bit of words, but anyways, so let's dive back in. No, mom. No, no, no. Sherry quickly joined the emotional mother had been dancing that had been dancing for decades. That's not what I meant at all. I mean, it's so special having you over. Goodness knows with our schedule, we'd like to visit more, but we just haven't been able to. That's why I'm so glad you took the initiative. Lord, don't strike me dead for this little lie, she prayed silently. In fact, I can do the costume any old time. Sherry said, forgive me for this little lie too. Now, why don't I make us some coffee? Her mother sighed. All right, if you insist, but I just hate to think I'm intruding. So that's another thing, you know, that people do. Sorry, little side note over here is where they make you feel like so guilty. And then they're like, oh, well, you know, I'd hate to think I'm intruding. Like, just never mind. You don't really have to do it. And it's like, okay, well, I am. So if you're kind of like that, which you probably don't even know you're like that, maybe let's, you know, let's have a little bit more realization in our lives. Let's realize when we're treating people like that and not treat them like that, right? So let's continue on here. The, the visit lasted well into the night. By the time her mother left, Sherry felt absolutely crazy, but she justified it to herself. At least I've helped make her lonely day a little brighter. Then a pesky voice piped up. If you helped so much, why was she still talking about her loneliness when she left? Trying to ignore the thought, Sherry went to bed. 6.45 a.m. Sherry returned to the present. No using crying over split time, I guess. She mumbled to herself as she struggled to close the zipper of her black linen skirt. Her favorite suit had become, as many others had, too tight. Middle age spread so soon, she thought. This week I really have to go on a diet and start exercising. The next hour was, as usual, a disaster. The kids whined about getting out of bed, and Walt complained. Why is it so hard to get the kids to the table on time? 7.45 a.m. Miraculously, the kids made it to their rides. Walt left for work, and Sherry went out and locked the front door after her. Taking a deep breath, she prayed silently, Lord, I am not looking forward to this day. Give me something to hope for. In her car, she finished applying her makeup at traffic stops. Thank the Lord for the long red lights. 8.45 a.m. Rushing into McAllister Enterprises, where she worked as a human resources director, Sherry glanced at her watch. Only a few minutes late, maybe by now her colleagues understood that being late was a way of life for her and did not expect her to be on time. She was wrong. They started the weekly executive meeting without her. Sherry tried to tiptoe in without being noticed, but every eye was on her as she struggled into her seat. Glancing around, she gave a fleeting smile and muttered something about that crazy traffic. 11.59 a.m., the rest of Sherry's morning proceeded fairly well. A gifted advocate and problem solver. Sherry was loved by the staff she served and valuable asset to McAllister. The only hitch came just before lunch. Her desk phone rang. Sherry Phillips. Sherry, thank goodness you're there. I don't know what I'd have done if you'd been at lunch. There was no mistake this voice Sherry had known Lewis Thompson since grade school. Lewis was thin-skinned, perpetually anxious, and seemingly always in a crisis. Sherry tried to make herself available to Lewis to be there for her, but Lewis 
never reciprocated. When Sherry occasionally mentioned her own struggles, Lewis either changed the subject back to herself or had some reason to leave. Okay, side note. I mean, honestly, we know people like this. <laughs> okay, so I just wanted to say that. There are people definitely, you know, where they are so worried about what they have going on in their life and that it should be so important for you to listen and to help them. But when you try to turn to them for help, yeah, no. They're not interested. They're changing the subject back onto themselves. So, back to the story. Sherry genuinely loved Lewis and was concerned about her problems, but she also resented the imbalance in their friendship. There's that word again. Resented. Right? As a Christian, she knew the value the Bible placed on loving and helping others. There I go again, she would say to herself, thinking of myself before others. Please, Lord, let me give to Lewis freely and not be so self-centered. Sherry asked, what's the matter, Louise? It's horrible, just horrible, Louise said. Anne was sent home from school today. Tom was denied his promotion, and my car gave out on um, the freeway. This is what my life's like every day, Sherry thought to herself, feeling the resentment rising. However, she merely said, Louise, you poor thing, how are you coping with all of this? Louise was happy to answer Sherry's question in great detail, so much detail that Sherry missed half of her lunch break consoling her friend. Well, she thought fast food's better than no food. Sitting at the drive-thru waiting for a chicken burger, Sherry thought about Louise. If all my listening, consoling, and advice had made any difference over the years, maybe it would be worth it. But Louise makes the same mistakes now she made 20 years ago. Why do I keep doing this to myself? 4 o'clock p.m. Sherry's afternoon passed uneventfully. She was on the way out the office to the teacher's meeting when her boss, Jeff Moreland, flagged her down. Glad I caught up with you, Sherry, he said. A successful figure at McAllister Enterprises, Jeff made things happen. Trouble was, Jeff often used other people to make things happen. Sherry could sense the hundredth verse of the same old song tuning up again. Listen, I'm in at church. Listen, I'm in a time crunch. I don't know why I said I'm in a church. Listen, I'm in a time crunch, he said. I just emailed you a draft of my presentation for next week's boarding meeting. All it needs is a little rewriting and editing. And I need to distribute it to the executive team for a preliminary review tomorrow. But I'm sure a quick turn will be no problem for you, he smiled. Sherry panicked. Jeff's editing needs were legendary. Sherry anticipated a minimum of five hours work. I gave him all the data he needed for his presentation three weeks ago, she thought furiously. Where does this man get off having me save his face for his deadline? Quickly, she composed herself. Sure, Jeff, it's no problem at all. Glad I can help. What time do you need it? Nine o'clock would be fine. And thanks, Sherry. I always think of you first when I'm in a jam. You're so dependable. Dependable, faithful, reliable, Sherry thought. I've always been described this way by people who wanted something from me. Sounds like a description of a good meal. Suddenly, the guilt hit again. There I am, getting resentful again. Lord, help me. Bloom where I'm planted. But secretly, she found herself wishing she could be transplanted to another flower pot. 4.30 p.m. Jean Russell was a competent teacher, one of many in the profession, who understood the complex factors beneath the child's problem behavior. The meeting with Todd's teacher began as so many before, 
minus Walt. Todd's father hadn't been able to get off work, so the two women talked alone. He's not a bad child, Cherry. Mrs. Russell reassured her. Todd is a bright, energetic boy. When he minds, he's one of the most enjoyable kids in class. Sherry wait waited for the axe to fall. Just get to the point, Jane. I have a problem child, don't I? What's the news? I have a problem life to go with it. Sensing Sherry's discomfort, the teacher pressed ahead. The problem is that Todd doesn't respond well to limits. For example, during our task period when children work on individual assignments, Todd was great Todd has great difficulty. He gets up from his desk, pesters other kids, and won't stop talking. When I mention to him that this behavior is inappropriate, he becomes enraged. Sherry felt defensive about her son. Maybe Todd has had an attention de deficit problem, or he's hyperactive? Mrs. Russell shook her head. When Todd's second grade teacher wondered about that last year, psychological testing ruled that out. Todd stays on task very well when he's interested in the subject. I'm no therapist, but it seems to me that he's just not used to responding to rules. Now Sherry's defensiveness turned from Todd to herself. Are you saying this is some sort of home problem? Mrs. Russell looked uncomfortable. As I said, I'm not a counselor. I just know that in third grade, most children resist rules, but Todd is off the scale. Anytime I tell him to do something, he doesn't want to do it. It's World War III, and since all his intellectual and cognitive testing comes out normal, I was trying to wonder how things were at home. Sherry no longer tried to hold back the tears. She buried her head in her hands and wept, feeling overwhelmed with everything. Eventually, her crying subsided. I'm sorry. I guess this just hit on a bad day. Sherry rummaged in her purse for a tissue. No, no, it's more than that. Jean, I need to be honest with you. Your problems with him are the same as mine. Walt and I have struggled making Todd mind at home. When we're playing or talking, Todd is the most wonderful son I could imagine, but any time I have to discipline him, the tantrums are more than I can handle. So I guess I don't have any solutions for you. Jean nodded her head slowly. It really helps me, Sherry, to know that Todd's behavior is a problem at home, too. At least now we can put our heads together on a solution. 5.15 p.m. Sherry felt strangely grateful for the afternoon rush hour traffic. At traffic. At least there's no one tugging on me here, she thought. She used her time to plan around her next crisis. Kids, dinner, dress report, and Walt. 6.30 p.m. For the fourth and last time, dinner's ready. Sherry hated to scream, but what else worked? The kids and Walt always seemed to shuffle in whenever they felt like it. More often than not, dinner was cold by the time everyone finally showed up. Sherry had no clue what the problem was. She knew it wasn't the food because she was a good cook. Besides, once they got to the table, everyone held it in seconds. Everyone but Amy, watching her six-year-old daughter sit silently, picking distractedly at her food. Sherry again felt uneasy. Amy was such a lovable, sensitive child. Why was she so reserved? Amy had never been outgoing. She preferred to spend her time reading, painting, or just sitting in her bedroom, thinking about stuff. Honey, what kind of stuff? 
Sherry would probe, just stuff, would be the usual reply. Sherry felt shut out of her daughter's life. She dreamed of mother-daughter talks, conversations for just us girls, shopping trips, but Amy had a secret place deep inside where no one was ever invited. This unreachable part of her daughter's heart, Sherry ached to touch. 7 o'clock p.m. Halfway through dinner, Sherry's cell phone rang. Who's going to let it go to voicemail, she thought. There's a precious little time for us to be together as a family. Then, as if on cue, another family, another familiar thought struck her. It might be someone who needs me. As always, Sherry listened to the second voice in her head and jumped up from the table to answer the phone. Her heart sank when she saw the name on the caller ID. Well, I'm already up from the table, she reasoned. I may as well get this over with. Hope I'm not disturbing anything said Phyllis, the woman's ministry's leader at church. Certainly you are not disturbing anything, Sherry lied. Sherry, I'm in deep water, Phyllis said. Margie was going to be our activities coordinator at the retreat, and now she's canceled something about priorities at home. Anyway, you can pitch in. The retreat. Sherry had almost forgotten that the annual women's retreat was this weekend. She had actually been looking forward to leaving the kids and Walt behind and strolling around the beautiful mountains for two days just herself and the lord in fact the possibility of solitude felt better to her than the planned group activities taking on margie's activities coordinator position would mean giving up her precious alone time no it wouldn't work sherry would have to say automatically the second thought pattern intervened what a privilege to serve god and these women sherry by giving up a little portion of your life by letting go of your selfishness, you can make a big difference in some lives. Think it over. Sherry didn't have to think it over. She learned to respond unquestioningly to this familiar voice, just as she responded to her mother's and Phyllis's and maybe God's too. Whoever it belonged to, this voice was too strong to be ignored. Habit went out. I'll be happy to help, Sherry told Phyllis. Just send me whatever Margie's done and I'll get to work on it. Phyllis sighed, audibly relieved. Sherry, I know it's a sacrifice myself. I have to do it several times every day, but that's the abundant Christian life, isn't it? Being living sacrifices, if you say so, thought Sherry. But she couldn't help wondering when the abundant part would come in. 7.45 p.m. Dinner finally finished. Sherry watched Walt position himself in front of the TV for the football game. Todd picked up his Xbox and headphones and disappeared into a video game, while Amy slipped away quietly to her room. The dishes stayed on the table. The family hadn't quite gotten the hang of helping clean up, but maybe the kids were still a little young for that. Sherry cleared the dishes from the table on her own. 11.30 p.m. years ago, Sherry could have cleaned up after dinner, gotten the kids to bed on time, and finished editing Jeff's report without ease. A cup of coffee after dinner and the adrenaline rush that accompanied crisis and deadlines, Sherry turned into superhuman. Feats of productivity productivity she wasn't called super sherry for nothing but it was becoming noticeably harder these days stress didn't work like it used to more and more she was having trouble concentrating forgetting dates and deadlines and not even caring a great deal about it all at any rate by sheer willpower she had completed most of her tests maybe her edits on jeff's report had suffered a little in quality but she felt too resentful to feel bad but i did say yes to jeff 
Sherry thought. It's not his fault. It's mine. Why couldn't I tell him how unfair it was for him to lay this on me? No time for that now. She had to get on her, get on with her real task for the evening, her talk with Walt. Her and Walt's courtship and early marriage had been pleasant. They were in love and they were good partners. Where she'd been uncertain, Walt had been decisive. Where he'd been pessimistic, she'd been hopeful. When she noticed Walt's lack of emotional connectedness, she naturally took it upon herself to try and provide the warmth and love the relationship lacked. God has put us together, a good team. She would tell herself, we both bring different strengths to our marriage. Walt has a lot of wisdom, and I have a lot of love. This would help her get over the lonely times when he couldn't seem to understand her hurt feelings. But over the years, Sherry noted a shift in the relationship. It started off slow, then became more pronounced. She could hear it in her his sarcastic tone when she had a complaint. She saw it in the lack of respect in his eyes when she tried to tell him about her need for more support from him. She felt it in his increasingly insistent demands for her to do things his way and his temper. Maybe it was job stress or having kids. Whatever it was, Sherry never dreamed she'd ever hear the cutting, angry words she heard from his lips of the man she married. She didn't have to cross him much at all to be subjected to the anger clutter on the counter, a checking overdraft, or forgetting to gas up the car. Any of these seemed to be enough. It all pointed to one conclusion. The marriage was no longer a team, if it ever had been one. It was a parent-child relationship with Sherry on the wrong end. At first, she thought she was imagining things. There I go again, looking for trouble when I have a great life, she told herself. That would help for a while, until Walt's next temper attack. Then her hurt and sadness would tell her the truth her mind wasn't willing to accept. Finally, realizing that Walt was a controlling person, Sherry took the blame upon herself. I'd be that way too, if I had a basket case like me to live with, she'd think. I'm the reason he gets so critical and frustrated. These conclusions led Sherry to a solution she had practiced for years, loving Walt out of his anger. It was strategy that went something like this. First, Sherry learned to read Walt's emotions by watching his temper, body language, and tone of voice. She became exquisitely aware of his moods and especially sensitive to things that could set him off. Lateness, disagreements, and her own anger. As long as she was quiet and agreeable, things went well, but let her preferences raise their ugly heads and she risked getting her head lopped off. Sherry learned to read Walt well, and quickly after sensing that she was crossing an emotional line, she would employ stage two of loving Walt. She did an immediate backtrack, coming around to his viewpoint, but not really. Quickly holding her tongue or even apologizing for being hard to live with all helped. Stage three of loving Walt was doing special things for him to show that she was sincere. This might mean dressing more attractively or making his favorite meals. Didn't the Bible talk about being this kind of wife? The three steps of loving Walt worked for a time, but the peace never lasted. The problem with loving Walt out of his anger was that Sherry was dead tired of trying to soothe Walt out of his tantrums. Thus, he stayed angry longer, and his anger isolated her more from him. Her love for her husband was eroding. She had felt that no matter how bad things were, God had joined them and their love would get them through. But in the past few years, it was more commitment than love. 
When she was honest, she admitted that many times she could feel nothing at all toward Walt but resentment and fear. And that's what tonight was all about. Things needed to change. Somehow, they needed to rekindle the flames of their first love. Sherry walked into the family room. The late-night talk show host on television screen had just finished his monologue. Honey, can we talk? She asked timidly. There was no answer. Moving closer, she saw why. Walt had fallen asleep on the couch. Thinking about waking Walt up, she remembered his stingy words the last time she'd been so insensitive. She turned off the television lights and walked to the empty bedroom. 11.50 p.m. Lying in bed, Sherry couldn't tell which was greater, her loneliness or her exhaustion. Deciding it was the first, deciding it was the first, she picked up her Bible from the bedside table and opened it to the New Testament. Give me something to hope for, Lord. Please, she prayed silently. Her eyes fell to the words of Christ in Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. She thought, but Lord, I already feel like that. Sherry protested. I feel poor in spirit. I mourn over my life, my marriage, my children. I try to be gentle, but I just feel run over all the time. Where is your promise? Where is your hope? Where are you? Sherry waited in the darkened room for an answer. None came. The only sound was the quiet pit-pat of the tears running off her cheeks and onto the pages of her Bible. What's the problem? Sherry tries to live her life the right way. She tries to do a good job with her marriage, her children, her job, her relationships, and her Lord. Yet, it seems obvious that something isn't right. Life isn't working. Sherry is in a deep spiritual and emotional pain. We can probably all identify with Sherry's dilemma, her isolation, her helplessness, her confusion, her guilt, and above all, her sins, that her life is out of control. Look closely at Sherry's circumstances. Part of Sherry's life may be remarkably similar to your own. Understanding her, str- her struggle may shed light on yours. You can immediately see a few answers that don't work for Sherry. First, trying harder isn't working. Sherry expends lots of energy trying to have a successful and meaningful life. She isn't lazy. Second, being nice out of fear isn't working. Sherry's people-pleasing efforts don't seem to bring her the intimacy she needs. Third, taking responsibility for others isn't working. A master of taking care of the feelings and problems of others, Sherry feels like her life is a miserable failure. Sherry's unproductive energy, fearful niceness, and over-responsibility point to the core problem. Sherry suffers from severe difficulties in taking ownership of her life. Sherry has had difficulty in knowing what things are her responsibility and what aren't. In her desire to do the thing, the right thing or to avoid conflict, she ends up taking on problems that God never intended her to take on. Her mother's chronic loneliness, her boss's irresponsibility, her friend's unending crises, her church leader's guilt-ridden message of self-sacrifice, and her husband's immaturity. And her problems don't end there. Sherry's inability to say no has significantly affected her son's ability to delay gratification and behave himself in school. And in some way, this inability may be driving her daughter to withdraw. Any confusion of responsibility and ownership in our lives is a problem of boundaries. Just as homeowners set physical property lines around their land, we need to set mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual boundaries for our lives to help us distinguish what is our responsibility and what isn't. 
As we see in Sherry's many struggles, the inability to set appropriate boundaries at appropriate times with the appropriate people can be very destructive. And this is one of the most serious problems today. Many sincere, dedicated believers struggle with tremendous confusion about when it is biblically appropriate to set limits. When confronted with their lack of boundaries, they raise good questions. One, can I set limits and still be a loving person? Two, what are legitimate boundaries? Three, what if someone is upset or hurt by my boundaries? Four, how do I answer someone who wants my time, love, energy, or money? Five, what do I feel guilty or afraid when I consider setting boundaries? Six, how do boundaries relate to mutual submission within marriage? Seven, aren't boundaries selfish? Misinformation about the Bible's answers to these issues has led to much wrong teaching about boundaries. Not only that, but many clinical psychological symptoms such as depression, anxiety disorder, eating disorders, addictions, impulsive disorders, guilt problems, shame issues, panic disorders, and marital and relational struggles find their root in conflicts with boundaries. All right, so that's, you know, her story and then kind of what it was saying, what was wrong with what she was doing. And that's just like the first chapter of the book. That definitely took longer than I thought reading it, but I just thought it was important to reflect on what a life without boundaries looked like because we may not even notice it right now in our own lives. And I definitely could relate to a lot of that. Uh, personally, just uh, being a Christian woman and being able to say no to certain things, even like with church or callings or whatever it is that I associate myself with in the church, it's hard to say no when you feel like you always have to say yes. So this book has been really great to kind of separate those things, but also it teaches, you know, things with relationships, with kids, with workload, like whatever it is, uh, this book is so great. So this book is called Boundaries. It is a New York Times bestseller, and it's by Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend. So basically, I read chapter one to you guys and then from this point forward I'm just gonna kind of talk about what each chapter was about and kind of have a conversation with you guys and ask questions for you guys to think about and I hope that this is something that you will like and enjoy I have really really learned so much from this and I just really want to spread the message to other people so with that being said This is just episode one, and there are many more to come about boundaries, and I'm excited you're here. Thank you for listening, and as always, if you ever have any questions, concerns, you can go to my Instagram, at yourfriendjenica, and you can DM me whenever you need some help or whatever it is. I am there for the people that are following me and need some direction. So again, I am not a therapist. I do not claim to be a therapist, nor do I want to be a therapist. I am, I go to therapy. I am currently taking medication. I do struggle with anxiety and depression. I'm not at all ashamed of it. I'm here to talk about it and I'm here to help your mental health. You Again, you do not need to struggle with a mental illness to set boundaries 
everyone needs boundaries and it's hard to know when those boundaries need to be set. So I'm again, I'm so excited. I am thinking that this is a really, really good thing to talk about because so many people have such a hard time. So thanks for listening and I will be talking to you soon. Bye friends.